I want to open up um, this morning by reading a poem. This is by Edgar Allan Poe. Take this kiss upon the brow, and in parting from you now, thus much let me avow. You are not wrong who deem that my days have been a dream. Yet if hope has flown away in night or in a day, in vision or in none, is it therefore the less gone? All that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream. I stand amid the roar of a surf-tormented shore and hold within my hand grains of golden sand, how few. Yet they creep through my fingers to the deep while I weep, while I weep. O God, can I not grasp them with a tighter clasp? O God, can I not save one from the pitiless wave? Is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream. And that's Edgar Allan Poe talking about just the fight against how fleeting life is. I want to make a big general comment about society. Most of the people I see are half awake when they ought to be asleep. But what's even worse, when they're awake, they're half asleep. People today, you see it all around in our society, are not living fully vibrant, fully alive with hope. They're not living like that. Is your hope gone? Do you have freedom? Just as last week I was reading in Reader's Digest some statistics on mental illness. And this study said that one out of every four Americans suffers from some form of mental illness. So let's take an inventory this morning, okay? Look at three people around you, yeah? (laughs) We can joke, but it's very telling about our society. There are lots of people in this room that are not feeling exactly right. And I can tell you from experience, I suffered from insomnia and depression when I was younger. How long have you lived? How long have you lived a hope-filled life? When said that maybe, that way, maybe it's not been that long. Maybe it's been a day. Maybe I had hope for a day. Or maybe even less than that, maybe a minute. Or is this more true about you? Has most of your life been the meaningless passage of time between all too few moments when you could say, I am genuinely alive and filled with hope, real hope? Not the way that video started, not I hope this or I hope that, not the worry kind of hope. Most of us do not live life as we should. We let it slip away. I can say this for myself. It seems like as soon as my pimples cleared, the aches began. <laughs> life slips away. It's gone. It's over. So often people don't have much of a future. And I think a person is truly old when their dreams of the past become more precious than their hopes for the future. You're cynical when, in fact, you do not believe in tomorrow. And I want to tell you about a God who wants you wants this morning to show you the future and how great the future is, and it is going to be better than the past. If there's any argument I have against modern sociology and psychology is that they're too oriented on the past. They say if you want to understand a person, you must understand where he or she comes from, his or her background. What is more important than your past and how you were brought up is your vision of the future. That affects how you live today. A person is more controlled by their visions of the future, I would argue, 
than their dreams of yesterday. That is a life lived through the lens of hope. Clear vision of the future. Hope for the future. And it will change how you live. It will change how I live. It will change our perspective. It will clarify what is important. It will change how we spend our free time. It will change who we spend our free time with. So, are we interested in learning about the future? Would you like to know what is expected of us as we journey down the road and what's next? A lot of people are filled with fear. Particularly now, the holidays, it's going to be rough for a lot of people. They're wondering what's going to happen in this world, politics, their families, their own lives. But this morning, let's be encouraged because the Bible is very, very clear. And we're going to look at some specific promises of hope. God is here. We're going to look at a section in the Bible called the Prophets. Where God comes and he talks about what is going to happen next in the future. And we can apply this to our lives. So we're going to go to Haggai, where we have been for the last, I believe, four or five weeks. We've been doing this series with Kevin. And we're going to look at the last part of Haggai chapter 2. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple, and they took most of the Jews into exile. About 50 years later, Cyrus the Persian took Babylon and brought the Babylon Empire to an end. And the very next year... 538 B.C., he allows the Jews to return to the homeland and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. All of this is owing to the sovereign hand of God, fulfilling the prophecies of Jeremiah, and we see all this in Ezra. Ezra talks about this, Ezra 1.1. So among the returning exiles were the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, again in Ezra 5.1 and 2. So Haggai and Zechariah were sent by God to assist in the rebuilding of the temple. This is the context for what we're talking about. The work was begun, and we see in Haggai 1.15, on the 24th day of the sixth month of the second year of the reign of Darius. We start to date this. That comes about 520 B.C. So you can see there's about an 18-year delay from when the exiles come back to when they start rebuilding the temple. And this delay is what brings forth the messages of Haggai. The way Haggai motivates the Jews to build the temple of God has a powerful application to our efforts today and how we want to build the church. And today we're going to focus on Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. And I'm going to ask everybody to stand this morning as we read the Holy Word of God and dedicate this service to him. Haggai chapter 2, verse 20 and following. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, I will shake the heavens and earth. I will overturn the royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders will fall each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant, Zerubbabel, son of Shetil, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for how you blessed us. I thank you for bringing us here together, and I pray that um, all that we say and do might glorify you, that we might Reflect on your promises and uh, live with grateful hearts and uh, humility with each other. 
We thank you for just allowing us to be part of the kingdom, serving the kingdom, for the privilege of being with our brothers and sisters, and we give this service back to you. It's in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So a little context, what we've been talking about the last several Sundays, when you look at Haggai 1 and chapter, chapters 1 and chapter 2, it's not very good for the people that have returned. And then we get this message. But at this point, when this message comes, it must have seemed like Zerubbabel, like, what's going on? What's going on here? We look at what's happening. God is working against us. Our crops won't produce. Our situation borders on desperate. Zerubbabel, the leader, is probably discouraged and might want to give up right now. And I think that's what we're talking about this morning. I think a lot of us feel like that this morning. Some of you are wanting to give up. I know. I have been there. Most of us have been there. I'm going to say all of us have been there. Wanted to give up and run away. Things aren't going your way. It looks like you can't see the promises anymore. It looks like God has abandoned you. We don't have time this morning to talk about all the places that people, men and women, run to and all the reasons why. But what we are going to talk about is how, as children of God, we are well-equipped to deal with severe discouragement and hopelessness. In the passage we're going to study today, God told Zerubbabel some things that gave him hope. And that's our message today. This message still inspires hope for us. Because our hope lies far beyond this message You see, what we learn about the messenger himself is what gives us great cause for optimism and faith in the most discouraging of times. It is having a better understanding of the ways of God and how God works and how his promises works that inspires us to continue on. So going back to verse 20, let's look at some of the promises. I will. This sets us up. How much of your life are you really in control of? During this part, what's happening here in the history of Israel, things seem out of control. For us, we can live a healthy lifestyle. We can exercise. We can eat right. But when an illness comes, how many of us, by our own will, can prevent it? And I know this one from my personal experience. We cling, I clung to my job as a sense of security. But anyone who's ever lost their job will tell you that in those moments and those months that come after, the insecurity of not having control is real. And it's a fact of life. There's much in life you cannot and will never control. But what we're going to see from Haggai, you can be sure God is in absolute control of everything, history, and including your small bit in history, your life. Six times in this, when it introduces in 20, God tells us that he's in control. He says, I will shake the heavens and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them. I will take you. I will make you a signet. I will is significant. These are not foolish statements given by a braggart, but given by the sovereign Lord of the universe. These are promises. This is a testament. This is a contract. 
Most of us understand the seriousness of a contract when we sign our name to that. God is saying, I will, without a doubt. You can take it to the bank, you can write it down, you can date it. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I am in control. God here is swearing on the highest authority. This is a solemn contract. And this is in the Bible all throughout. It's his name. It's the highest promise. It's serious. God's name is serious. And unlike us humans, he takes his words seriously. No empty promises are made. And we will see this as we trace the history of Israel. So at this point, why did Zerubbabel need to hear that? Because when things got so bleak in the nation of Israel, there may have been some faint of heart or the weak that began to doubt God's control over their physical circumstances. God is in essence saying to the people right now, you know it was bad yesterday, you see it's bad today, and you've grown to believe that things are never going to get better, but I'm telling you right now, I will. It's key passage because of the nature of the promise. It resembles what we see in Revelations and Hebrews where God says he will shake the nations. And I don't want to get all apocalyptic on you this morning because that is not really my deal. There are plenty on TV that apparently understand eschatology a lot better than myself. Than myself. I'll let those guys make the prediction. Here's the point that I want to make. What I think God is trying to emphasize here is the same promise he's always been emphasizing. Anyone? There's only one right answer. There's only one right answer ever in church. What is it? Jesus. Jesus, Thank you. Whenever you're in doubt, Jesus is the right answer. It's always Jesus. (laughs) That's the promise. Revelation is a book to the church about Christ and his work and his promise and his triumph. There are certainly other things in there, but... We must not take them out of context. The Bible is about one promise and is repeated over and over and over and over again. And I'm not smart enough to guess. I'm, but I am smart enough to know that when God tells me something repeatedly, I should pay attention. And this promise is the context of the Bible. This section in Haggai is the promise. The promise, our hope, our life, and let's put it in context this morning. This is very messianic. Verse 23, let's look at that. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shittel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Who is Zerubbabel? Let's put this in context. Most of us are unfamiliar with the concept of a signet ring. Perhaps the closest contemporary analogy we have would be an identification bag that gives you, badge that gives you access to all kinds of higher classified information. When an ancient king wanted to affix his seal to a document, he would take his signet ring, put it in the soft wax, which would then harden into an unbreakable uh, seal. So this signet ring is far more than decorative. It signified honor, authority, Ownership, preservation, tender regard, special relationship, and it's a personal guarantee of safety. Now, there's an additional fact about Zerubbabel that we may not realize. He had a grandfather. His grandfather was Jeconiah. 
who many years earlier had been one of the last kings in Judah before the exile. And he was wicked. He did not serve the Lord. And Jeremiah 22 tells us a lot about him. In Jeremiah 22, God pronounced a curse on Jeconiah. In which he said, you were like my signet ring in my hand, but because of your sin, I'm taking you off my finger. Then he sentenced Jeconiah to deportation to Babylon, never to return to Israel. Finally, he uttered these words in Jeremiah 22:30: Write this man down as childless, a man who shall, not, who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants will prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. Jeconiah is being told that not only will he be punished, but his descendants will be punished as well, and no one will sit on the throne of David. The royal line has been broken. This is significant. We're going to expand on this. But God says to his grandson Zerubbabel, I will make you like a signet ring. Here we see the grace of God at work. Because of Zerubbabel's faithfulness, the curse on the family has been lifted and the signet ring is back on God's hand. Zerubbabel himself never sat on the throne of David, but one of his descendants did. In Matthew 1.12, this is what's cool. It mentions the name of Zerubbabel in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Zerubbabel never made it to the throne, but his great, 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 great grandson did. I think I have enough greats in there. We know it because the angel of Gabriel said of Jesus, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. That's Luke chapter 1, 32. 33. So 500 years later, a baby is born in Bethlehem who was in the lineal descendant of Zerubbabel, God's signet ring. This is the Messianic promise in verse 23. This is the promise. If you look at the Bible as a whole, you can see this clearly. An idea is developing in the Old Testament. And I see the Bible as a beautiful story of God calling us back to himself, beginning with this prologue that we have in Genesis 1 through 11 of sin, and then a promise where the story actually begins, God's redemptive plan that's progressive and unified begins in 12 with a promise. And you go back to the beginning when God created the world And you see passages like the prologue of John and Proverbs 8 and Genesis where it talks about God created the world with the word and everything was good and it was perfect. And we see this perfect relationship between creator and creation. And when we think about it, this is very common for us to do. We see a beautiful maple tree or the beautiful fresh snow or the ocean or the mountains or we look up in the universe and we watch programs that talk about the stars and the cosmos and we say, wow, that gives glory to God. We were his last best creation. We are to give glory to God too. We were created in his image. And you get this in Genesis where it talks about Alpine where he hovers over things and he actually breathes life into us. Our mission, we see this in the relationship in Eden, is to give glory to God. But somehow, as humans, we have separated that, I think because we have two things we've always struggled with and we're going to look at. In our hearts, we are humanists. We always think we can do it by ourselves, and we want to. 
And in our hearts, we're pluralists. We always want to find another way other than God. And that's been the sin from the beginning. Genesis 3 tells us that we were lured, our parents were lured by Satan, tempted by Satan, to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and become like God, and they bought that lie. And it's very, very ironic because when you look at the relationship, no place in history were we more like God than in the garden. And the fall was complete when the desire of man to rule his own life and promote his own glory became so strong that he scorned the wisdom and the love and the power of God by, by rejecting God's abundant life for us. And with Adam, the whole human race fell. And then all through Genesis 1 through 11, we have 2,000 years of just awfulness because we're trying to do it on our own. But then there's a promise in Genesis 12. The promise. It's the context of the Old Testament. It's the context of Haggai. Now we arrive at a point in history which will prove a tremendous importance that will shape both the course of this age and the age to come. God is coming to reclaim what is his. And he zeroes in on one man, Abram. We see in Joshua 24, 2 and 3, he was a worshiper of false god in the land of Ur. And it says this with unbelievably far-reaching implications. It says this in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This is the covenant. This is the testament. This is the contract. This is the promise. Go from your country and all your kindred and all your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And completely sovereign grace of God comes to an undeserving idolater with this life-creating authority and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing to the world. And with that, we have the beginning of the history of Israel and the beginning of the history of us all. And if you don't understand the Old Testament in the context of this promise of making a great nation and everything that happens to Israel and what happens in Haggai, you're not going to really understand the Old Testament. It's going to be out of context. So let's jump right to it, okay? Let's jump to the final question. Who are the heirs of this promise made to Abraham and his seed? Who are the beneficiaries of the blessing of Abraham? In Genesis 17, 4, God says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of multitude of nations. This changes. The seed of Abraham is not restricted to the Jewish nation. And you see Paul write about this in Romans 4. He will father descendants who belong to many nations. Genesis 12, 3 will be fulfilled. In you, all families of the earth will be blessed. We see Paul work through this in Galatians 3, 8. In other words, it's the seed of Abraham that will inherit his blessing. The seed will include many nations, and therefore many nations or families will be blessed through Abraham. Many nations will be the heir of his promise. And again, it's Jesus. It's messianic. One day, I'm going to stand before the throne of Christ. And I'm going to look at God, and I'm going to stand there, and I'm going to say absolutely nothing. 
because I don't have to, because Jesus will be by my side. And he'll say, Father, I would like you to meet George, the perfect one. And I promise you all, when I get there, I will put in a good word for every single one of you here. I sincerely hope to see you there, okay? How can I say this with such confidence? Because this is the promise. The scriptures say, my sins are blotted out. They are buried in the deepest sea. They are remembered no more. Jesus will present me before his father spotless, without blemish. All the things about myself that I don't like, Jesus says, let me take them upon myself and make them my own. This is the Abrahamic promise that God gives right out of 2,000 years of human sinfulness after the fall. And this is the promise that is renewed in Haggai 2, 20 through 23. Who then are the heirs of the precious and very great promises made to Abraham and to his seed? Church, you are. To whom can it be said your sins are forgiven? God is for you with all his power, goodness, mercy. He will pursue you all your life. You will rise from the dead. Your name will be great. Your assembly as the stars of heavens. You will possess the gates of your enemy. And then the land of Israel and all earth will be your inheritance. And you will fill the new world with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. To whom can this be said? To you, the children of Abraham through faith in Christ. For 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23 says this. For all things are yours whether world or life or death or present or future, all, and he's talking about the promises here, all the promises are yours, for you are Christ's. And Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, is God's. This is the promise we see in verse 23. And I want to talk a little bit about the language that's used here. Servant, my servant, and the return. Verse 23. God is going to exalt his chosen servant. That's what he told Haggai. But let's think for a moment about the context, what we're hearing in the Old Testament and New Testament. What is their major problem? How did Israel get to this point? Because they struggled with pluralism. They're trying to find other ways except what God said is the way. And the language here is the same language that we see in Isaiah 41 through 53. It's messianic. It's the promise given in Genesis 12.3. It's the same language here in 2.23 in Haggai. And it's specific. It's very specific. Israel struggled with pluralism, trying to compromise God's perfect promise. Paul wrote numerous letters to the first century church about this very problem. And as we build the church according to the template we see here in Haggai for the temple, there's a caution for us today. Some say there are many ways to God. We've seen a recent resurgence in spiritual things. It's a much needed change. People are starting to realize there's more to life than accumulating wealth and personal fame, and that's good. We're spiritual beings. We need God. But there's a great fuzziness when it comes to the definition of spirituality, indeed, the definition of God. Underneath the express need for spirituality these days, I think, in our Western culture, is a belief in pluralism. The assumption is clear. There are people that even say there is one God, yet there are many ways to him. All faiths are legitimate. The only illegitimate faith is the one that says all the other faiths are not true. 
This is the message of our pluralistic society. But listen to the words of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. Jesus is not pluralistic. He's specific. I am the way. I am not one option among many. The world says there are many ways to God, but the Bible simply doesn't teach that. And I know we've jumped around a little bit. We've been in Genesis and a couple other things, but we're trying to put this in context. We're not proof texting here, okay? I don't want anybody to misunderstand that. So stay with me. We're doing big picture stuff here, okay? What does God's word say? God says there's only one Messiah. More than 500 years before Jesus came to earth, God revealed this message through Haggai to Zerubbabel. I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. God chose the messianic line, and he chose the one who would be the Messiah, the king who would conquer and rule forever. The line is restored. Here's the practical application. Through God, Haggai gives us this wonderful prophecy of the temple, of the Messiah, of our access to God, which was cut off by us, the fall of humankind. But the promise is reiterated here. How was this prophecy fulfilled? Like most prophecies, is fulfilled in stages, and the final stage, the final fulfillment is yet to come. But by the time Christ had begun his ministry, Herod had rebuilt Zerubbabel's temple, and we read in the New Testament, it was magnificent, truly magnificent. But the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. And Jesus said this in John 2, 19 through 20. Here's a transition. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But he spoke of the temple of his body. Jesus said there's a direct continuity between the Old Testament temple and himself. Once God met his people in the temple that we're talking about in Haggai, now he meets him now we meet with him in Jesus Christ. And I want to jump to Revelation 21, 22. The final state of eternity is described. When the new Jerusalem descends, John says this, And I saw no temple in the city, for it's the temple of the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The point is this. God had a purpose for the temple. The Jews of Haggai's day could not see it all, and what they did see seemed not very good. Which is why we see encouragement from God to them in the beginning of chapter 2. He tells them, be strong, take courage. What you see, there's more. There's more. The heavens and earth and sea and all the treasures are mine and I will shake them. I will take the fruit of your little labor and I will make it glorious beyond measure. No matter how trivial and paltry it might seem right now, be strong, take courage. I am in control. I am with you. I have made these promises. I will. I'll say this about Revelation. Christ is coming and the promise will be complete. So we've jumped from Haggai to Genesis to put this in context. Now let's really put it in context because this is the promise. Hebrews and Revelation go back and quote these passages all the time. New Testament quotes these passages all the time. Jesus says this, All the nations on earth will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds and the sky with power and great glory. And then the ball game's over. It's over. Life as we know it will be done. And for all of us who know God, it will be replaced by something far better. And these are the final words of the promise. I am coming back soon. 
Why does God choose for these to be his final words? I believe it's because of the centrality of hope. I believe it's because God knows you and I must have hope to live. That's the message we see here from Haggai to Zerubbabel. Have hope. We have to have hope to face tomorrow. The strange thing about human beings is you can put us through almost anything. Awful conditions. Horrible things. Horrible things have happened and we have survived. But we've done it because there's been some hope. There's a principle here that applies to you and to me in the book of Haggai. God takes small imperfect things and builds them into the habitation of his glory. We should take courage in our small spheres of influence. This is the message of Advent and Christmas. And you see God encourage Mary as he encouraged Zerubbabel. What more appropriate word could God have said to Mary as Jesus growing up than take courage, young mother, you build more than you can see. And so it is with every one of us. Nothing we do is trifle if we do it in the name of God. He will shake the heaven and earth to fill your labor with splendor. Take courage, you build more than you can see. And to Zerubbabel, the covenant is renewed. To the church, you are called. I am called. We are called. You are his signet. You are the fulfillment of his blessing. Christ is the temple now, the fulfillment of God's glory. We, have seen, we all have access. Matthew twenty-seven fifty and Hebrews 9 through 11, Christ is our in-between. Christ is the new temple. That's the message of Haggai. That's what he's talking about. From the fall of humankind through sin to the promise of Abraham through David, all traced through Israel's history to the prophets to the person of Jesus Christ, his death, resurrection, and his coming return. My grandfather uh, signed up for World War II and went to the South Pacific. And my grandmother tells a story about the day that he left. He didn't want to go with her uh, to the bus depot. Uh, He didn't want to have that sad goodbye. And his last words to her were, I'll be back. And later she tells us that he wanted those words to stay with her. I'll be back. So she would have hope. And during the course of the war, she would listen to the radio. She would follow the news of what was happening. She tried to pinpoint on the the map where my grandfather was. And my grandfather came home after the war, knocked on the door. And my grandmother and my grandfather redefined, I'm sure, the word party in that day. But this is something that I think is a principle of what Jesus is talking about here. His last best words. He says, the war is going to go on for a while. You can follow it every day. But the day's going to come, maybe tomorrow, maybe today. Maybe today, when there's going to be a knock on the door, the trumpet is going to sound, and the war will be over. Yours, mine, everybody's. Jesus' last words of this promise are, I'm coming soon. The last, best words of the messianic promise. No more cancer, no more evil, no more broken hearts, no more lonely marriages, no more unloved children, no more failed friends, no more regrets, no more guilt, no more being defeated by sin, no more saying the wrong thing, no more addictions, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. You have one hope. You should be a very hopeful person. All your hope should be pinned on one thing. Not your strength, not your family, not your job, not the legacy you've built, not how right or clever you are. 
This is the one hope you've got. And it's the promise we've looked at. He's coming back. Jesus is coming back. And all that's wrong will be set right. The last best words of scripture in the last chapter of Revelation say this. It's Jesus. Jesus who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. And I say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let hope change your life. We've seen this promise fulfilled. He is the temple for us now. Live like he's coming. Live full of hope. Particularly now, as some of those we know are emptily approaching the celebration of his first coming, fill them with hope. Be called like Zerubbabel. Be the signet. Carry Christ's name with the awe and reverence the promise deserves. Sacrifice yourself so that others can live. Find your joy by giving yourself to others and to the church. You are part of the messianic promise. You are. You are beautiful children of God. You are children of the free. You are his signet. You are his seal. You are his promise. You are his heir. God bless you.